welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. If God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and if He rescued Lot, that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8, New International Version Hello. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're so happy you're able to join us today on Anchored by Truth. This is the eighth episode in a series we're calling The Seriousness of Sin. As the name of the series implies, we are in the midst of taking a detailed look at sin and the impact it has had on our world and the impact it has on our lives and futures. So far, We have talked about both the current and eternal consequences of sin and the reality and nature of hell. We began talking about how seriously God treats sin. We started the process by examining the enormous consequences of the first sin in the Garden of Eden and moved on to looking at the worldwide flood where God destroyed almost all life on earth because of sin. As he has been throughout this series, to help us continue to think through the hard truths that accompany sin's existence We have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., a lot of people in our day and age want to pretend that sin doesn't exist, or at least that God doesn't really care about our sin or judge us for it. But neither one of those ideas is true, are they? Those ideas are not only not true, they're dangerous. You know, when people stop thinking that sin is really serious, well, they stop treating sin seriously. They become, in effect, like someone who goes on guard duty and then falls asleep. A sleeping guard poses a danger not only to the guard themselves, but to the entire camp. And the same thing is true of sin. If we don't think that sin is serious, we won't put up our guard against it. And that's not only dangerous in the here and now, but as I've mentioned, it puts people's immortal souls in peril as well. You know, As we've seen in our last few episodes, we should know that sin is serious, if for no other reason, because we know and can see from the Bible how seriously God treats sin. Death entered creation, and man lost paradise because of one single sin. And then when God could only find one righteous man on the face of the earth, God removed all the rest of the people and the land animals and the birds and started all over with the animals and birds and the family that he had preserved on the ark. We know that the flood of Noah was caused by sin because in Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 8 we hear, quote, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, 
I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Unquote. And the flood of Noah is a graphic example of just how seriously the Lord treats sin. But the flood of Noah is by no means the only example of how seriously the Lord treats sin that we find in the Bible. And you said that today you want to move on to another one of the clearest examples of how seriously God treats sin, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, God once again found a huge group of people that just refused to give up their sin. So God stepped in and gave us an object lesson through their destruction. Right. And we find out that even later biblical writers beyond Moses who wrote Genesis, that later biblical writers used Sodom and Gomorrah to warn their audiences of their day of the seriousness of sin. You know, and the general story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's so well known that I don't think we need to spend too much time on it. But there is one aspect of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that I don't think is discussed very often, and that's what I want to focus on today. And what aspect is that? Well, I want to talk about the story of Lot. Lot was the patriarch Abraham's nephew, and in many ways, Lot was the central figure of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I frankly think that Lot's story raises more questions than it answers. So I want to spend some time today on those questions. So to start with, let's note that Lot is mentioned several times in the book of Genesis between chapters 11 and 19. And one of the first things we find out about Lot is that Lot accompanied Abraham and Abraham's father Terah when they left Ur of the Chaldeans and began the journey to Canaan. Lot was with Abraham, if you will, from the beginning. And Lot traveled with Abraham for the next several years, decades probably, including Abraham's sojourn into Egypt when they went down there to escape a famine. And as they went along through their various journeys, both Abraham and Lot became very wealthy. Genesis chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 say, quote, Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together, unquote. Right. So because the tension was growing between Abraham and Lot's servants, Abraham made a very sensible suggestion that they separate. And Abraham gave Lot the choice of whether Lot wanted to go east or west. Well, when Lot looked east, he looked at the Jordan River Valley, which was lush and green. But when he looked west... He saw nothing but hills and mountains and rather rugged country. So Lot decided, I'm going to go east down to the lush green valley rather than stay up in these rugged hills and mountains. Well, the next mention that we have of Lot in scripture after his decision to go east, we find out that rather than continuing to tend his flocks and herds on the plain near the Jordan River, Lot has now decided to settle in the city of Sodom. Genesis chapter 14 tells us that a confederation of kings attacked Sodom and some other nearby cities, captured them, and carried off plunder and captives. Lot was one of the captives. Abraham heard about Lot's capture and mounted a successful rescue mission. So at that point, Lot has definitely settled in Sodom. And Sodom was undoubtedly already a very wicked place by that time. 
but for some reason, Lot had decided to settle there. Now, we know that Sodom was already wicked because of what we heard in our opening scripture. The Apostle Peter tells us that, quote, that righteous man Lot, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, end quote. And of course, we all know how it ended. In Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 through 26, we hear, quote, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt, unquote. And that's from the New International Version. Right. So, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, as we have said, a graphic example of how seriously God treats sin. But, as in Noah's case, God did not rain destruction down on Sodom and Gomorrah without first sending a warning. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, God sent two angels to warn Lot and tell Lot to get his family out of there. Now, sadly, most of Lot's family did not listen to the warning, and they were destroyed along with the rest of the population of the towns. Even Lot's wife, who initially heeded the warning, looked back, despite being warned not to do so, and she also lost her life. So in Sodom and Gomorrah, we have the same pattern continued that we saw in Eden and in the flood. God warns people against sinning, and then the people ignore the warning and commit the sin. Then, God judges the sin and consequences ensue. Paradise is lost, the people are sent into exile, and if the sin continues to grow, the consequences get worse. But, God always continues with his plan of redemption, and God is always able to rescue the righteous. Yes, and in the case of Lot, it's a bit amazing, to me, that he is still referred to in the scripture as being, quote, righteous. But he is. You know, Lot, in many ways, is a very puzzling figure. But his life does provide us with some very clear lessons. What is puzzling about Lot? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter refers to Lot as being righteous. Now, we know that doesn't mean Lot was sinless. When the Scripture labels someone as being righteous, it certainly does not mean that they're perfect, that they're sinless. But it does mean that they have a genuine concern for the things of God and that they are aware of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Jesus' half-brother James let us know that being righteous does not mean being sinless. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, quote, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, unquote. And that's also from the New International Version. In the same version, James tells us to confess our sins, which means we know we have them. And he goes on to say that the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. There would be no point in telling us to pray if being righteous meant being sinless. Exactly. So, the scripture calling Lot righteous does not mean that Lot was sinless. Far from it. But it does mean that Lot knew that there was a God in heaven who was sovereign, is sovereign, who has established standards for human behavior and expects obedience, punishes disobedience, and will give rewards if they're due. Lot knew at least those things. In fact, Lot probably knew a lot more. I mean, Lot had spent decades in Abraham's company 
and Abraham in Scripture is called the father of the faithful. Romans chapter 4 verse 11 says in part that Abraham, quote, is the spiritual father of those who have faith, unquote. So, Lot had the benefit of years or decades of being in the presence of one of the true spiritual giants of history and scripture. Lot knew, or should have known, more about faith in God than just about anybody of his world. But after Lot became wealthy, Lot began making a series of decisions that can only be labeled poor or even disastrous. For instance, let's just take a look at Lot's change in circumstances. In chapter 13 of Genesis, Lot has so much wealth that he has to separate his flocks and herds from Abraham's. Lot apparently has a sizable company of servants and animal tenders. Quite likely, Lot's wife has handmaidens and other domestic servants. Lot is wealthy in his own right before he moves into the vicinity of Sodom. When he first moves onto the plain, he was likely still living in tents while supervising his flocks and herds. But at some point, Lot decided to move into a house in Sodom. And that's a great illustration of how dangerous sin is. Now, we are not told why Lot decided to actually begin living in Sodom, but we can engage in some holy speculation. You know, initially, Lot is living near Sodom in the Jordan River Valley, so he probably began trading with some of the people and merchants from the town. And he's probably selling them milk and cheese and meat from his flocks. And he and his followers are probably buying food that would come from a settled agricultural community. Things like oil or nuts or olives or raisins. But Sodom probably had merchants selling other goods as well. While this is long before Israel existed as a nation, that area was an important trade route between Egypt, Syria, and other countries to the north. Sodom was a goodly sized town for the day. They probably had people selling tools and utensils as well as luxuries cloth, spices, wine. It would have been easy for Lot and his crew to start to believe that it was easier to make a living from trading than from the physical labor of managing sheep, goats, and cattle. And life in town was undoubtedly easier than life on the plain in the tent. Lot wouldn't be the first person to trade the farm for the city. I'm reminded of the famous song from World War I, How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? So at some point, Lot did trade life on the farm for a sad, wicked version of Perry. You know, if Lot had still been living in tents, there's a pretty good chance he would have moved his household out of the way when he found out there was a confederation of kings that were intent on capturing the cities of the plain. But at any rate, by the time chapter 19 of Genesis arrives, Lot has been in Sodom for some time and Lot is sitting in the gate of the city when the two angels approach Sodom. Now, sitting in the gate, sitting in the city gate, is a sign that Lot has become a town elder. You know, when he first came to town, Lot was probably pretty wealthy, and his wealth helped him become an influential person in town. So much so that by now, several years later, he's sitting in the city gate with the other elders. But even though he is sitting with the other elders, he is not like the other elders. However he does it, Lot recognizes that the angels are different from other visitors that come to Sodom. We don't know whether he knew they were angels by seeing them or whether the Holy Spirit gave him a nudge. But Lot knows that the arrival of these two is a danger to the town. He tries to get them out of sight and out of the way of the people in the town. In many biblical descriptions of the encounters with angels, the angels are described as appearing like young human men, likely attractive. 
and that appearance would have made the angels exceptionally attractive to a city that was given over to homosexuality, which we hear about in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 19. But Lot knew that exposing these visitors to the townspeople would really bring judgment down. Now, I can't be sure, but I think Lot was hoping to keep the angels away from the crowd, hoping that the next morning the angels would just leave town and things could go back to their normal level of wickedness. But Lot soon learned that wasn't going to happen, didn't he? And just as Abraham had discovered the previous day, Lot found out that God had already determined to bring destructive judgment onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, remember that in chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham had conducted a sort of extended negotiation with God. And Abraham had gotten God to agree that if God could find just 10 righteous people in town, God would spare the whole city. Now, my guess is that while Abraham is involved in his negotiation with God, Abraham is thinking to himself, well, let's figure out how many righteous people there are in Sodom. I mean, he would be thinking, I know that my nephew Lot is righteous, that's one, and then his wife is probably righteous, that'd be two, and then there are his children, and maybe some of his children have married and influenced their spouses to come to know God. So Abraham was probably counting up the number of people in his head, even as he was talking to God before God left Abraham's count, and Abraham was probably thinking, oh gosh, there surely must be at least 10 righteous people in the town, just those people associated with my nephew. And of course, God could agree to spare Sodom if he could find 10 righteous people, because God already knew that there weren't 10 righteous people in Sodom. In fact, as the story unfolded, it's likely the only righteous person in Sodom was Lot. And God rescued Lot as well as his two daughters. Lot's wife sealed her own fate when she turned back to look at Sodom after the angels warned her not to. And that may be an indication that one of the big reasons Lot had left the plain and moved into the city and stayed in the city was because of his family, because his family wanted it that way. You know, we know from the account that some of Lot's daughters had already found husbands among the men of Sodom. Verse 14 of chapter 19 refers to Lot's, quote, sons-in-law. That's the New International Version. The New Living Translation calls them the daughter's fiancés. So that clearly shows that Lot's daughters were prepared to marry wicked men in order to continue to enjoy the comforts that they had gotten used to. I see what you mean when you said that Lot is a puzzling figure. We know from Second Peter that Lot was righteous. But if Lot was righteous, which he was because the Bible says he was, why would he remain in the midst of so much wickedness? As the verse from Second Peter says, Lot was, quote, tormented, unquote, by the lawlessness, the wickedness going on around him. I suppose it's possible his family may have been the source of his willingness to remain in Sodom despite the evil he saw around him. His wife looked back even as she knew the city was being destroyed. Lot's daughters refused to leave, even after Lot begged them to. This is a great lesson for us all. We have to be strong enough to resist the temptation to engage in sin, even when it's our family members who are presenting the temptation. And that's one of the very clear lessons from the story. The populations of Sodom and Gomorrah had become like all the people of the world during Noah's day. Their actions were wicked continually. And even people who should have known better, like Lot's family members, got swept up into the wickedness and it resulted in their destruction. 
but the foundation of that destruction had been laid years earlier when Lot had let the temptation of his eyes sway his decision about where he would settle. Lot chose what he perceived to be the easier path. Well, and that first poor choice was followed by a whole succession of poor choices. And that's how sin proceeds. At first, the poor choices may seem to be unimportant ones. You know, I'll go down to the valley rather than remaining in the hills. But as sin is, one poor choice leads to another. And then the final end for many of the people, even in our day and age, is the loss of everything. But, as you've said before, sin's effects aren't limited to just the person making the poor choice. After they had left Sodom, eventually Lot and his two unmarried daughters wound up back in the mountains anyway, living in a cave. Then, when the daughters realized that they were now outcasts from the people they were living among, they made even more bad choices. They began to fear that they would never be able to get married and have kids, which was considered a curse in that time. So they got their father drunk and had an incestuous relationship with him. They were successful in their intention because they both got pregnant. But the boys they gave birth to became the founding fathers of the nations of Moab and Ammon that would plague Israel hundreds of years later. Yes, but the incest raises another puzzling question. And it makes another important teaching point. You know, Lot knew his uncle Abraham was still in the general vicinity of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, the Bible tells us that Abraham was close enough to see the dense clouds of smoke rising from the cities after God had rained the fire and brimstone down. Abraham wasn't just close enough to see a distant cloud of smoke. He was close enough to see a dense cloud of black smoke rising. After the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot knew that he and his two daughters are now homeless. Well, why didn't Lot just ask the angels for permission to return to Abraham's camp rather than asking them to be allowed to go to another nearby town in the Jordan River Plain? That's a good question. Thank you. I guess the immediate answer that comes to mind is that Lot was too embarrassed to return to his uncle's camp. Years earlier, Lot had parted from Abraham as a wealthy man with a good reputation. After Sodom's destruction, he is now homeless, penniless, and disgraced. He lost his wealth, most of his family, and his judgment is now seen to be questionable. What we don't know is whether Abraham warned Lot about the dangers of being near such wicked cities when they parted, and Lot chose to go to the Jordan River Plain. If Abraham had given Lot that kind of warning, which is something a wise, concerned uncle might do, then Lot would have had double the reason for embarrassment. And that's the point. After leaving the town of Zoar, which is where the angel said they were allowed to flee to, now, you know, it's pretty likely, I'd say it's highly probable, that the reason Lot and his daughters had to flee the town of Zoar is because they were forced out by the town's residents. I mean, here you got these three refugees from two cities that have just been destroyed by fire and brimstone. They arrive in your town. I mean, many of the people would have thought, these people are cursed. Heck, it may be these people that brought the destruction on those two towns. And after they did so, they go up to the mountains and they find a cave to provide some shelter for them. And Lot's daughters became desperate. I mean, they're tired, they're hungry, they're discouraged, and frankly, they're now facing about the grimmest future possible. And Lot's daughters are particularly desperate, thinking that there is no way they will ever be able to get married and have kids and leave a fulfilling life. And in that day and time, if a woman was not married and didn't have kids, she was considered to be cursed. 
So the daughters, I'm sure at that point, are becoming absolutely desperate about their own future. And in addition, they've got the very practical concern that their father is aging, and someday they know that they're going to get old, and if they don't have any kids, who is going to provide for them? So in their desperation, Lot's daughters came up with a drastic solution. And it worked, sort of. Lot's daughters have children who grow up to give rise to two future nations. But both of those nations would become enemies of the future state of Israel, and those nations would contain their own share of wickedness. Now, it's impossible to know if Lot had chosen to return to Abraham, to his uncle's camp, whether his daughters might not have had a much better future among his own relatives. But it is at least reasonable to speculate that they probably would not have had to resort to incest if Lot had simply decided to return to Abraham's camp. It's just another sad element in this entire sequence of poor decisions that started when Lot let the lust of his eyes begin his descent into sojourning with sin. I like that phrase, sojourning with sin. Lot's tale set within the broader setting of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is both cautionary and encouraging. It's encouraging because, as the Apostle Peter pointed out, God knows how to rescue his children even when they are found among those practicing gross sin. He knows his children, and he will keep us even when we make poor choices, a lot of them. That's encouraging. But Lot's tale is also a cautionary one. Sodom and Gomorrah were desperately wicked, but Lot could have remained safely outside of them. Said plainly, the more distance we put between ourselves and the sin, the better off we'll be. Lot had everything he needed to live a joyful, successful life, but he exchanged it for what he thought would be an easier life. Maybe his family was part of the temptation, but the decision to sojourn with sin was his own. This is a great lesson for Christians. God can protect us, but why should we put ourselves in positions where we need rescue? Lot barely escaped destruction, and his poor decision-making led his daughters to make desperate, driven decisions that would plague a future Israel. Our goal should be to emulate Abraham, not Lot. Abraham developed the maturity of his faith throughout his life in the mountains and is listed in the faith, quote, Hall of Heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. Lot drowned his faith in the pleasures of the world and his entire family paid the price. Sin is too serious and dangerous for us to move in next to it. We're better off in the rugged mountains where our faith can grow than in the lush valleys where sin presents constant temptation. This sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our school-aged children who are facing their own challenges with test-taking. We hope they will avoid the temptation to seek the wrong type of help as they prepare and take tests. Part of our role is to ensure our kids that the right kind of help is always available and they never need to be embarrassed by asking for it. Prayer Before Taking a Test Heavenly Father, you have been so good and kind to me. I praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. You rule the universe, yet you love us so much that you care about the parts of even our daily lives that trouble us. Thank you for being a merciful Father who carries our burdens. Lord, you know I have a test coming that has been weighing on my heart. I know that tests are a part of learning and education. 
You know so well that tests can be very difficult for some of your children, including me. Lord, I pray that you would help me with this test. I pray you would help me to prepare effectively for the test. Help me to take advantage of all the books, study aids, and guides that I can find. Direct me to my fellow students, teachers, or friends who have an understanding in this area and who can assist me. Please defeat any tendencies I have towards discouragement or fear because these are the tools of the enemy. When I am in the test, please send the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind all that I have learned. Keep me calm and help me to focus on simply doing my best. My joy and hope are in Jesus. I pray and give thanks in his precious name. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, dot com. Thank you for your support.